are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, and so it begins. We've just heard the opening verses of the book of Romans. And I've thought over our past decade together about when it might be the right time to pick up this portion of Scripture. You might remember that every year we're committed to getting to three places. We spend time in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the New Testament letters. And as we follow this pattern, slowly but surely, we're getting to know the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture. And so to date at the Wide Church, we've studied 13 Old Testament books, 11 New Testament letters, all four Gospels, Acts, some of Revelation, and various other passages thrown in. It has been one of the greatest joys of my life to spend time with you in Scripture. So over the years, we're getting to know this book as we make our way around, and we're getting to know the God who wrote it for us, which is really the whole point. And so many times over the years, I have wondered if we're ready for Romans yet. We have studied 11 epistles so far, but we have never studied Romans until now. I just have sensed here at the start of our second decade together, now is the time that the Lord's affirmation is here for us to step into this book. Why all the fuss about Romans, you might wonder? Why the special fanfare? Well, it's 7,114 words in the original. Romans is the longest of the New Testament letters. But even more than its length, I find it's substance that gives us pause. Samuel Coleridge said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. And John Knox called Romans unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. And so you're starting to hear a little bit of the weight of this letter by Paul. And indeed, I want to start our study by whetting your appetite for the book of Romans. I want to tell you a little of its significance and see if we can't get us to the edge of our seats, eager to see what this book will mean to us. So let me tell you, first of all, about a man named Aurelius Augustinus. He lived in the fourth century. He was born originally in North Africa and grew up there in his younger years in the Roman Empire. Augustine was an incredibly bright young man. He worked hard and he partied even harder. He had climbed to the heights of his career. 
He was successful at whatever he did, but Augustine was empty and bordering on despair. There was one day where he was over at a friend's house. He was working as a professor in Milan, Italy at the time. And he was over at a friend's where he just sat in the yard in the garden, weeping uncontrollably. And then all of a sudden, through his tears, he could hear from a neighboring house the voice of a little child kind of coming on the wind, and the child was singing. And the child was singing these words, take up and read, take up and read. Well, Olypius, Augustine's friend, had been reading from a scroll, which then just happened to be laying there in the grass. And so Augustine picked it up, and his eyes fell immediately on these words. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Augustine said later, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Augustine went on to be perhaps the single greatest theologian in the entire history of the church, and his relationship to Jesus was sealed in the book of Romans. Centuries later, in the 1500s, I want to tell you about an Augustinian monk and professor who was living in Germany. One fall semester at the University of Wittenberg, he started to teach the book of Romans to his students, a class that would end up lasting for 10 months. And as Martin Luther would prepare his lectures over those weeks and months, he said, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. It was Romans that opened the doors for Martin Luther and opened the doors for the reformation of the church. Some 200 years after that, there was a man in England who was attending what we might call a book club. But he really didn't want to be there. He only went because he felt obligated. So he begrudgingly shuffled down the street until he came to this building. And then when he stepped into the room, what he heard was someone doing a reading from Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Later in his journal, John Wesley said, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away. Perhaps more than any other single moment, John Wesley, running into Romans that night, sparked what's called the Great Awakening and a spiritual revival that swept across Britain and its 13 American colonies. So are we realizing now, just these three stories, a little bit about what we are holding in our laps and what we have open before us on our tables in our Bibles? 
a letter of scripture that has turned the world upside down. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and we don't have time for me to tell you about Tyndale and Calvin and on down the line. And I want to invite you to study this letter in great anticipation of what the Lord will say to you. He said in Isaiah, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And I believe there is a purpose for which he sent it, which includes you and the book of Romans. Last summer, we gathered for a memorial service for our dear friend and sister in Christ, Nikki Holmes. I read during the service from her prayer journal, which her family had shared with me. And I read these words in Nikki's own handwriting. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How did Nikki know to write that? How did she know this? She read it in Romans. And I want to invite you to do the same. So here's our approach as we work through this book. If we were to try to cover every single chapter and verse, you know, we would be here as long as Luther's class was meeting in Wittenberg. It would take us a year to get through Romans. And so I've tried to kind of go down the middle of the road here and take this approach, that we would study it thoroughly, but not exhaustively. And so we're going to cover most of the book, but not every single thing that's there. We're going to study the first half of Romans here over the next eight weeks leading up to Easter. And then in the fall, we'll study the second half. In between, we're going to camp out in the Gospels for the summer, and we're going to study the book of Mark. Since we're not able to study every verse of Romans on Sunday mornings, I just want to urge you to read the rest and fill in the gaps on your own. Now, I know that some of you are doing your own Bible reading plans. And I don't want to discourage you in that or get you off track from what you're already doing. I got a wonderful text message earlier this week from someone who shall remain nameless, though I will give a little clue. She is a retired kindergarten teacher. She texted me and said, the Bible reading plan has been so good for me. I'm doing the five-day plan and really learning a lot. You know, to get that kind of text message was just the highlight of my day. And so I know some of you are doing the five-day plan, some of you are doing the Essential 100, and I don't want to get you off track, but as you're able, fill in the gaps of what we can't cover on Sundays. Find time somewhere between now and Easter to read the book of Romans. After Christmas, I think I told you that I spent about 48 hours in a little hermitage in the woods kind of a solitude retreat. And while I was there, I stumbled into, it wasn't something I planned, but stumbled into reading the book of Romans out loud right there in my hermitage. And it was just a profound blessing to me and did so much to prepare my heart for our study together now. With all that said, let's turn to our Bibles and set the stage for what we're about to read and study over these coming weeks. 
The author of this letter, as we've said, is the Apostle Paul. And in Paul, we have the kind of dramatic change that we alluded to in Augustine's life. Paul was on a different track. He was going a totally different direction, and then God intervened, and everything changed. Paul is someone who went from persecuting Christians to following Christ. Paul is someone who went from imprisoning Christians to actually being imprisoned himself for Christ. He went from participating in murder in Acts chapter 7 to eventually being martyred himself. And we have to ask ourselves, looking at the life of Paul, how does that happen? How does this happen to someone? Well, Evelyn read it for us. This is how it happened. Paul met Jesus, and it changed the whole direction of his life. That's what Romans is about. Essentially, it's about meeting Jesus and what happens in your life because of it. That's what Paul is writing about. In fact, Romans has been nicknamed the gospel according to Paul. When he wrote this specific letter, it's kind of unique in that he was writing to a church that he had neither planted nor ever visited. He was writing to the followers of Jesus who were there in Rome who would gather in house churches across the city. Remember, this is before church buildings really existed. And so you almost have to think of something like our network of Y groups. That was the church in Rome. And we know that there were Christians in Rome dating back to Pentecost and Acts chapter 2, where they're mentioned. So at first, it would have been Jewish believers in Jesus who were the church in Rome. But now by this time, when Paul is writing, the Gentile or non-Jewish believers had become the predominant group. And as we read Romans throughout this year, you can see that tackling division, dealing with race, and striving for unity in the church are big themes for the Church of Rome, and the application to our own time is readily at hand. But Paul is writing this letter really in preparation for his plan to go and visit Rome and to spend time with the churches there. Little did he know that he would get to Rome, he would accomplish that, but it would be under very different circumstances than he thought. He'd arrive in Rome three years after the writing of this letter as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And it's in Rome that Paul eventually would be killed for his faith and his missionary activity on behalf of Christ. Emperor Nero had him marched outside the city and beheaded on the roadside. This was part of a coordinated persecution of Christians that Nero meant to wipe out the church, to wipe out those who were following Christ. But what did Tertullian say? He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the church in Rome under Nero wasn't snuffed out, it grew, it flourished. Years later, Ignatius described the Roman church as worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of congratulations, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy in purity, preeminent in love, walking in the law of Christ and bearing the Father's name. I read that this week and I thought, oh, may it be the same for us. May this be our reputation one day the church at the Y. And so we pick up this letter that, yes, was originally addressed to the church in Rome, but in God's design is also written for us today. 
Josh read for us these first seven verses, which make up in these letters in the New Testament what's called the salutation. This is how Greco-Roman letters began with these three distinct parts. So they'd list their name as the author first. Then they would write who the recipients are, and they'd finish it up then with a formal word of greeting. Now, normally this would be very brief in all kinds of other letters that we have from that time. Usually it would be pretty short and sweet, and it would say essentially, me, you, greetings. It would maybe fit on one or two lines, but Paul takes that format and he expands it. And in fact, Romans is the most lengthy form of how Paul does this that we have in front of us. But you'll see that Paul's not just being long-winded. No, he's taking this practical form of Greco-Roman letter writing, and he is packing it full of meaning. And that's what we're going to look at now in our closing minutes together. He starts by identifying himself as the author. That's what came first there in verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek word for servant that's used there is doulos. And depending on the translation, you might see in your Bible the word servant, bondservant, or slave. And really, all three of those are correct. They're just fine. The important part is that we would understand what it means. A Greco-Roman doulos, a slave, was bought, owned, did not earn wages, and could not quit. Unlike American history, however, in their world, slavery was not by race, but by socioeconomic status. A slave was the lowliest, most humiliating position on the social ladder. You know, you were owned by another human being entirely at your master's disposal. The only way out is if your master happened to set you free or if someone bought you out of slavery. The other word for that we remember from Ruth is redeemed. This is the only way you're getting out. So do you see the significance here of what Paul is saying? He's saying his chief identity is as a slave or bondservant of Jesus. It's a statement of total devotion. He is completely at his master's disposal. His life is owned by Christ. And I wonder if that's how you and I would describe ourselves. I went to bed one night this week. You know, I'd been looking specifically at this part of the passage, and I just started to kind of say it right out loud as I was getting ready for bed. I would say, Bjorn, a bondservant of Christ. Everybody else was in bed, so just me and the dog, and he didn't seem to mind. I just repeated this over and over again. Bjorn, a bondservant of Christ. I encourage you to try the same. Put in your own name in that spot and see how it sounds. Because here's the thing, what makes all the difference is not who you are, it's whose you are. You know, we can chase this question around so much, who am I, who am I, and get caught up and absorbed in trying to answer that question, but the Bible puts a different spin on it. The Bible wants you to answer the question, whose am I? I wish I could look our students right in the eyes as I say this, our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, our young adults, if you want to figure out who you are, then first determine whose you are. Because our identity ultimately comes 
from belonging to Christ, then everything else starts to fall in line. Paul gives himself one word in the introduction here. He just says his name, and then he jumps immediately to telling us whose he is. He says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. With that settled, he goes on to add a couple more identifiers. He says, called to be an apostle. God had called him out of his previous way of life, just as he does for you and I. And for Paul, he commissioned him as an apostle. That means an eyewitness messenger of Jesus. Then Paul adds this one. He says, set apart for the gospel of God. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, and it means good news. The good news, the gospel, is that God sent his son to repair what's wrong in the world and very personally to repair what's wrong in my own heart. And that is such good news. The gospel is about who Jesus is and what he's done. And Paul then goes on to give us this sketch of the gospel in verses 2 to 6, still introducing himself. That's the part of the salutation we're in, but he's just completely subsumed by Jesus. He says that the gospel was promised in the Old Testament, that Jesus was a descendant of David. And having just finished Ruth, our ears perk up as we hear that. That though he came to live an earthly life, he was the son of God and he was resurrected from the dead. Paul says through him, he received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. For his name's sake. And then Paul zeroes in on the Romans and he says, And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There it is again. It's not who you are. What is Paul saying? It's whose you are. You're called to belong to Christ. Where my son spent his early years in Ethiopia. There they would give kids in his situation the last name of the city where they had been orphaned. And so his name was Nati Adama, Adama being the city where he first came into orphan care. And I remember when he'd been home long enough to have learned some English, then I remember him looking at me one day and saying, no more Nati Adama, no more orphanage. He knew he had learned where he belonged and he wasn't looking back. And you and I have to come to the same realization spiritually that we belong to Christ. Briefly here as we close, Paul then shifts in verse 7 to the second part of the salutation, and that is to name the recipients. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And you see Paul just returning to this theme again and again and driving it home. They're not just a church in a certain location. He says they are loved by God and called to be his people. It's not who you are. It's whose you are. And I don't care what kind of situation you may find yourself in right now, how your life feels what disappointments you may have, the fears and uncertainty that may be looming over your life. You are loved by God 
and called to be among his holy people. Holy people is actually the word saints. It's the actual word that Paul uses. And we hear the word saints, you know, we think of people who were really religious and who behaved really well. That's how you get to be a saint. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not a biblical definition of the word saints. Saints are the people of God, past and present, not because they behaved, listen to this, but because of whose they are. Being a saint is not about behavior. It's about status. And God says you're in. He says in Christ that you belong to him. And aren't those amazing truths as we begin the letter of Romans? We're servants of Christ. We're called to belong to him. And we're called to belong to his people. We're going to finish here where Paul finishes. And that's with this formal word of greeting. He says to the Romans, and I say to you, grace and peace to you. So grace, meaning the gift of his love and unmerited favor, and peace, which is well-being in every facet of your life. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, the stage is set. The gospel has been announced, and you have been called to receive it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, what a gift it is that you call us your own. What sheer mercy, Lord, that our lives were bought and paid for, that we were set free by the death of your Son on the cross. Would you help each one of us, Lord, to live our life fully devoted to you, that we would be unswayed, uncompromising, that we would live as humble servants of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.